CRP Media advises the following program is rated M for mature audiences. It contains adult themes, sexual references, and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everybody, I'm Chris Rosser and you're listening to The Bottom Draw. Forgive that overly dramatic opener, but um, funnily enough, that's how content warnings used to sound in Australia before a um, M-rated TV show or um, movie back in the 90s in Australia. And yes, this week I'm talking about bad language in fantasy, so if you are offended by that sort of thing, you may want to tune out until uh, my next show. First I'll start with a little follow-up. In my last episode, I talked about maps, and a couple of people have since asked me how I created the map I posted both in the show notes and in Caddock's Contract, my book that I published earlier this month, and with what software that I used. I used a program called Pixelmata. It's an inexpensive Photoshop clone for the Mac. There's also an iOS version, but I don't use that. I've used Pixelmata now for several years. I'm actually thinking about it. It's a lot longer than several years ago. I just checked my... um, App Store purchase history, and yes, I bought Pixelmata way back in uh, September of 2011. It was one of those programs that promised to be like the, I don't know, the X program for the rest of us. Um, So essentially, it was a Photoshop Lite that was inexpensive, and um, even before Adobe went uh, for their subscription model, Pixelmata was only about you know a hundred bucks, which was your drastically cheaper than uh, what the Photoshop uh, purchase price was. And I had a version of Photoshop. Uh, I still do, but for a Windows license, because at the time I was doing a lot of contract work and I picked up um, um, a Windows version because I was working predominantly in Windows environments. But personally, I've always used a Mac, so I just wanted something that um, I could use that was good enough to uh, edit photos and do a little bit of light painting work with it. Pixelmata as a Photoshop clone really did fit that bill. And it's close enough to Photoshop that an awful lot of the tutorials uh, that you see in blogs or on YouTube are directly transferable. And this is important because uh, for uh, a lot of the fantasy cartography stuff that you see out there, well, most professionals are using Photoshop. And when you come across a tutorial on YouTube, a lot of what you see there is directly transferable to Pixelmata. Unlike some alternatives like um, GIMP, for example, a popular open source raster graphics editor. Since Pixelmata is available on Apple's platform only, I'd be missed if I didn't make a couple of other mentions that um, I've dabbled with, but I don't use for a couple of reasons. Some cheap alternatives I'd recommend are Affinity Photo or Designer. And unlike Pixelmata, they are available on Microsoft Windows too. There's also some dedicated mapping software you could look at. For example, there's Campaign Cartographer, Incarnate, and Wonderdraft. I do hesitate to recommend these, though, for different reasons. Campaign Cartographer is expensive, and as a CAD program, a computer-aided design program, it has a very steep learning curve. So it's quite different to a raster program like Photoshop, where which uses... Um, Painting and selections as metaphors, it's it's much more um, complex than that. Incarnate is a very popular web-based mapping software, but this is subscription-based to unlock all its features, and almost every map I've ever seen created with it tend to look the same. 
Still, it's an excellent choice for creating your own reference maps, and um, you really should check it out. WonderDraft is a bargain. I think it cost me about 20 American dollars to buy, um, and it's very easy to use. The maps are also um, that it, the maps that it creates are actually quite nice to look at as well, and there's lots of themes that you can apply to them. However, I found that it requires a computer with a particularly good NVIDIA graphics card. It ran poorly on high resolutions on the two computers I tested it with. One was a Mac with Intel HD graphics, and the other was a Windows PC with an AMD 7000 series graphics card. Uh, and I just found it lagged. It wasn't great. So digging through the documentation and the uh, support forums on Reddit, it's yes, this card is very much optimized to good NVIDIA uh, graphics cards, the sorts of things you'd get in a, a decent gaming PC. Software aside, for drawing and painting, I also strongly recommend a graphics tablet. I have an inexpensive one I bought from a Chinese online retailer. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. It's not as good as a Wacom, which is sort of the industry standard for graph drawing tablets, but it's good enough for my needs, though I have noticed they haven't updated their drivers for uh, Mac OS for a long time. and. Uh, because Mac is moving to um, a 64-bit driver model um, from uh, whatever version I've got, Mojave, I'm going to need to do something about that in future. I may need to buy, uh, I'll probably have to buy the bullet and buy a Wacom. Another thing I use and recommend is a library of custom brushes and textures. I can't tell you, a, can't give you a definitive list because I've collected these over the years from sites like DeviantArt and, and various blogs where Designers and artists have just shared this stuff. Uh, and I've, I've literally been collecting these for more than 10 years. So, um, you know, if you're interested in cartography, look out for this sort of stuff and start adding it to your collection. For many of my reference and city maps, I also use a couple of random generators, which I've reviewed on my blog last year. They're some of my most popular articles, and I'll put some links in the show notes. As for my techniques, honestly, there's not a lot to them. I'm by no means an artist, and most of what I've learned has been through watching tutorials on YouTube and just experimenting. Because Pixelmata is a pretty good clone of Photoshop, as I've already noted, most of the techniques that I've found on YouTube or people's blogs are directly transferable. At some point, I may create my own tutorials for Pixelmata on cartography, but I don't really know how much value that will be because... I think that although it's a popular app, it's restricted to the Mac and um, the iPad, and I just don't know how many people would use it. I might be better off using something like Affinity Photo, which I think is, uh, the, the appeal of that is growing and it's much more popular. But honestly, I have no desire to switch at this point. So um, who knows? Anyway, I'll keep you posted if I ever decide to do one of those. Moving on to some news. The big thing for me this month, of course, is my latest book, Caddox Contract, is now available. Um, I published it earlier this month. And so far, I've had some really positive feedback starting to trickle in. I've even picked up a couple of four and five star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, which is terrific. One of the reviews inspired today's topic, which I'll get to shortly. This month, I've launched a new monthly column over my blog, and I'm calling it Ross's Reads. And it's basically a showcase of what I think are the best indie books, at least, that come across my radar. The column comes in two parts. A newsletter with um, a list of about four or five curated books. And what I've been doing is to read through them and pick my favorite, whereupon I do a full review on my website. 
come the end of the year, I'll pick my favorite read for the entire year. I'll announce it on this podcast. And uh, I don't know, I might do a giveaway or um, something cool like that. So stay tuned. This month, my pick was The First of Shadows by a new Canadian author, Deck Matthews. It was a great book. I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of promise in the world he's created and the, um, his writing is, um, is terrific. I also got the chance to interview Deck, which was terrific. He's a really interesting guy as well as a fabulous writer. So if you haven't checked it out, I suggest you uh, read my review, Deck's interview, and um, I strongly urge you to buy his book, especially if you, um, you love you know, fantasy of a slightly darker shade, because he is certainly an author to watch out for. Anyway, I had a lot of fun doing this, and feedback has been great so far, so this is certainly something I want to continue. I've got my curated list for next month, and uh, I'm just reading through them now to decide which one gets my pick of the month. And um, oh, some good stuff, some really good stuff. So keep an eye out for uh, when that column lands. Moving on, and I've also subjected myself to a couple of interviews, namely with um, Hartzett Martin and Mark Timoney. Both are terrific writers and bloggers, and uh, they ask me some great questions, so I implore you to check them out, and if you can, linger a bit on their websites. Hart's recently written a fabulous article that ties feminism with her Listen of Solster series, and it was a, it was a great read, sort of, I think she uh, released that on uh, International Women's Day. So, on to today's topic. Today I'm talking about swearing in fantasy, something I've put a lot of thought into since publishing Caddock's Contract which includes some strong coarse language. One of the reviews I received on Amazon dinged me for my unimaginative use of an F-bomb. Other than that, it's a great review, and I'm certainly not out to bash a reviewer, who I might add reached out to me on email all the way from Texas, where I put forward my case and generally had a great discussion with her. Anyway, some of the differences I realized were largely cultural. Spend enough time around Australians, and you'll perhaps appreciate that we tend to swear a lot. Our culture is very informal, and this is reflected in our classification system, which permits teenagers, for example, to view a lot of adult content once they reach the age of 15. I understand this is different in the United States, where generally people tend to be a little more conservative, particularly those from the southern states. There's also an assumption many people have, I think, that fantasy is a genre for children and teens, and therefore they should be, um, how do you say, protected from that kind of content. Growing up in the 1990s, YA fiction wasn't something I read. In fact, I don't even remember the term being used in marketing vernacular of the time. I graduated to reading adult books very early in my teens. While I don't provide a content warning for my books, I trust that my covers, blurb, and the keywords I use on Amazon and elsewhere signpost my writing as mature in nature. Also, I just wonder how many kids are able to actually buy stuff from Amazon anyway. So I figured in today's podcast I'd discuss some of my reasoning for swearing and why I chose unadorned English to do so. But first I'll start perhaps from the beginning. Not of my writing, but in the current flavour of the month, Game of Thrones. To anyone who's seen the TV series, you'd be forgiven for thinking fantasy is a pretty hardcore genre, where almost anything goes. Granted, HBO have added their own brand of adult-themed content, but long before the TV series was realised, it all started with a book. I first read A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin sometime in the late 1990s, after it sat on my shelf for a couple of years. Back then, epic fantasy, as a genre, was still owned by the old vanguard, 
of Raymond E. Feist, Robert Jordan, Robin Hobb, and, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien. Martin was a relative newcomer, and his book was definitely a slow burner. But when I started reading it one summer holiday, I really enjoyed the description, and I liked the way Martin switched between his ensemble cast chapter by chapter. But then I read a scene that made me bolt upright in my bed. It was the scene in which the brother of Daenerys Targaryen casually explained that to secure his kingdom, he would gladly let the entire Dothraki horde and their horses fuck his sister. I might as well add, she's about 13 years old at that point in the book, certainly nothing like her portrayal in the TV series. I was utterly shocked, but not by the word itself. At that point, I'd read plenty of contemporary books where swearing was used and coarse language was a staple of many of the action films I watched as a teenager. No, I was shocked, because to my mind, Martin had broken one of the fantasy genre's biggest taboos. People did not swear in fantasy. Until that point, most of the fantasy I'd read was mild, to say the least. Sure, it could be violent, sometimes graphically so, but sex and swearing were off-limits. Occasionally a character might exclaim with a God's damn it, or to call someone a bastard, but I'd never read an F-bomb and certainly not a C-bomb. Martin did both, frequently, and went on to break many more taboos like incest, rape, and even menstruation. Martin ushered in the grim dark era, that subgenre of fantasy where the themes are dark, the tone is fatalistic, and the characters are deeply flawed. The writing is gritty and visceral. Grimdark is more akin to spaghetti westerns where anti-heroes of ambiguous morality are motivated more out of self-interest than serving a higher purpose. It's a far cry from the color-coded stories of the old guard where perfect heroes go on quests to defeat horrible dark lords. Other authors followed in Martin's wake, and the genre rapidly took on a more mature character. Since I myself was entering adulthood at the time, I certainly appreciated the genre was growing with me. Two authors that stand out from the crowd in this new wave were Joe Abercrombie and Brent Weeks. Both authors freely used profanity, and Abercrombie even penned an article on his blog about his reasons and in his typically black sense of humor. Many of his reasons echo mine. And while I don't classify myself as strictly a grimdark author, I'm certainly on that end of the spectrum. Yet I still agonized over the use of swearing in my own books. That established taboo is hard to break, and I have no interest in being sensationalist for purely shock and awe value. In Caddock's contract, the titular character and his men are mercenaries, and rather rough ones from a part of my world that doesn't share our post-Victorian prudish belief that people in ye olden days didn't swear. This historical point is worth exploring a little further. Swearing is not the modern invention of Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy. The words we regard as vulgar have been part of our language from its earliest origins. Indeed, until the early modern period, and only really since the Victorian era, they weren't even considered particularly vulgar at all. Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, written in the Middle English of the 14th century, is probably the best-known example. But even Shakespeare's writings are not completely clean, particularly in their original versions. The Bard was also fond of the time-honoured play on words. So where Chaucer happily used the C-word, Shakespeare famously toyed with his audience with his referral to country matters. I was interested once to learn that many modern feminists are attempting to take back the C-word, particularly after the groundbreaking vagina monologues. The C-word is ancient, and in times past was venerated as almost sacred, as a source of life and pleasure by the Anglo-Saxons. 
Christianity, of course, takes a dim view of the sacred feminine, sex, and women's bodies in general. And so over the centuries, the word slowly changed its meaning until it was infamously described in a 19th century dictionary as a nasty word for a nasty thing. Our polite clinical word vagina is borrowed from the Latin word meaning a scabbard, i.e. something you stick a sword in. Just let that sink in for a moment and consider Roman attitudes to women. Language is powerful, and the meanings of words speak directly to the values of our culture. So back to Catholic's contract. Toning down or censoring my swearing felt like a betrayal to the character. A man in Caddock's position who slaughtered dozens of people for personal gain and is feeling overwhelmed by remorse isn't going to say, gee shucks, I burnt the dang muffins when he's angry. Using long word phrases like, by the fires of the Dark Lord and other such nonsense, the character's raw emotion is lost, impact is lessened, and credibility is stretched. Swearing in English is short, sharp, and to the point. When I stub my toe, I don't appeal to some ancient deity's undergarments or their pet dog. I don't recite some wordy, vulnerable piece of law handed down through generations untold. I say fuck and I say it loudly. So why should my characters be any different? Until next time, I'm Chris Rosser, and you've been listening to The Bottom Draw. Thank you.